0: Well, I think my refrigerator's dying. Oh, no. I had a similar thing in England. We came back and we have a garage freezer. And we came back and it was just slightly defrosted. Everything was cold, but there was, you know, water. There was juice in the bottom of the frozen chicken bag and stuff.
1: It's no good. No. I got sort of like this weird sense that something was wrong. I was walking by the fridge and I heard this click, click, click. Oh, that ain't right. No. And I've been thinking about ways to put a temperature sensor in there for a while. You know, it's been on my mind. And I hear this click. So I think, okay, am I feeling it? it? doesn't feel right. It feels like the tater tots are a little squishy. You know, shouldn't be like that. <laughs> so the wife gets up this morning. and I tell her, hey, look, this is what I think is going on. Although by this point, I'd heard the compressor kick in. So it was working again. I thought, hmm. And it definitely was cooling down again. But here's the moment that was a victory, Alex. You know what she says to me? She's like, hey, couldn't you put a temperature sensor in there, and then we'd get historical trends at Home Assistant? The wife asked that. Yes, <laughs> what a win is that, right? That is amazing. And I was like, right, you are. So then I was like, motivated, even though I was running late to get down to the studio. I was like, no, I'm going to get this set up right now because she's on board. We're getting this done. <laughs> I, you know, so I did a
0: similar thing this week. I know you've gone Z-Wave. Uh, I actually went Zigbee. I bought a couple of the Akara sensors. Yeah, and I put a couple in the freezer, and and they're. Connected up to Home Assistant, real easy. Time will tell how long batteries
1: last at minus 17 Celsius, though. Okay, so you are doing battery power. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Huh. I right now am getting after 24 hours, I am getting 54 percent battery remaining. Oh, <laughs> oh my! No. And there are two little Durazol lithium batteries, two of them, little lithium batteries. So <laughs> I don't know how long this thing is going to last.
0: My kitchen fridge sensor is at 100 percent, and the freezer is at 98, and they were both
1: powered up at exactly at the same time yesterday so oh we'll see we'll see yeah i'm hoping that mine stays at 54 percent. you know like it just like the sensor just got a big drop because of the, the cold who knows uh but yeah the z-wave does seem to be making it through the walls of the fridge which i just wasn't so sure about and you know i thought this would be a great way the wife was completely right like i i gotta know because to pull this fridge out First of all, it's like built into the cub- cupboards of the RV and it's bolted in. So it has, it'd have to be, re- so I'd have to take it to a shop. They'd have to have a couple of guys remove this fridge. Then I'd have to have an RV tech come over or a, a fridge tech come over and try to repair it. And if they can't repair that fridge, they have to remove the slide or remove the windshield and take the fridge out that way because oh, it's bigger no. than the door is wide. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. And it's just a regular old re- residential fridge they put in these things. It's not like it's been like prepared to go down the road or anything it's just it's just a house fridge that they like hey, people like bigger fridges let's put a let's put a house fridge in the r v You'd have to take it out <laughs> the windscreen. oh my God, yeah, that's like the stuff of nightmares, yeah, so I'm gonna watch it carefully for a bit. I may even get like a battery pack and just try to run a flat u s b cord into there. When I was Googling online for this, people were really kind of coming up with uh, pretty clever DIY solutions for this, where essentially they come up with a really thin cable that goes to a remote sensor that they mount inside the fridge, and then they have the transmitter and the power source outside the fridge. You could do that with an ESP board pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah, that would be pretty great. And then perhaps I'd build my own cloud after going to visit a cloud guru, the leader in learning for cloud, Linux, and other modern tech skills. They have hundreds of courses and thousands of hands-on labs. Go get certified, go get hired, and get learning at com. It's been a busy week in the Kretschmar household. I'll tell you what. You've accomplished something that I have thought about doing a, a, a number of times, and that is I, I inherited, I think much like you did, a set of Hughes lights that my wife had at her office with its little Hue hub. And it's not great. I don't like having a separate piece of equipment pulling power And I think there's a way I could get rid of that sucker. So I I know you did a lot of things this week, but one of them, I believe, was you eliminated the Hughes hub from your Hue lights.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So as part of the Zigbee fridge temperature sensor stuff, I bought myself one of these sewn off CC2531 Zigbee sticks, USB sticks that goes into my home assistant box. Uh, With Proxmox, I was a very easy pass-through, you just plug the thing in and then click uh, add USB device and it just shows up in Home Assistant. That bit couldn't have been easier. But I was finding that the range from the the Sonoff stick was pretty terrible. I'm talking 10, 12 feet terrible. Not good at all when it's in the basement. Yeah. So I sort of thought to myself, aren't these Philip Hue bulbs that I have already got 10 of in the house? Uh, Because when I emigrated, I bought at Black Friday, I bought a 10-pack that came with the, you know, starter pack that came with a hub. It was a pretty good deal, as I recall. I can't remember how much it was, but I remember thinking at the time, ah, this isn't too bad. But anyway, so I've got a bunch of Zigbee devices. And as part of the stuff I did for my dad's in England uh, last month, the guy behind My Local Bites told me that any permanently powered Zigbee device acts as a mesh repeater in the network. And I was like, I could use these lamps to increase the range of my little USB stick. So why don't I try unpairing from the Philips Hue app just one bulb? I'm going to try just one, see how it goes. Within a minute, I'd unpaired and repaired it with uh, ZHA and Home Assistant. And I was like, whoa, that was easy. So I thought to myself, well, okay, you've done one bulb in one minute. Why don't you go and do the next bulb in the rear hallway that's just next to the fridge? And then you've got two in a row that are then, and hopefully it'd be better for the, the fridge sensors. And then I thought, well, what, you've done two. <laughs> <laughs> and I went all in and I did all 10 yesterday evening. And the performance of the cheap sewn off CC2531 was good when I had two or three devices. But by the time I got to the 10th bulb, not so good. I'm talking, I'd press a button in Home Assistant, and I'd wait, and I'd wait, and I'd be like, did that register? Is this working? Are we here? Hello? Are we a light bulb? Are we a crisp packet? Are we a a train? What are we? Oh, yes, that's right. We're a light bulb. I'm going to turn off now. And uh, yeah, so I've gone ahead and ordered one of these, uh, what's it called? A B version 2. Based off a recommendation of one of the guys in Discord, so that's going to show up tomorrow. So maybe I'll report on that in the next episode. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've been I've been pretty pleased with how easy Zigbee, you know, deep the the Dhu Hub migration
1: thing. I've been pleased with how easy that was. To be honest with you, you know, I've been experiencing some delays on occasion. Not all the time, not consistently, but I've been experiencing delays on my Z Wave network and. I just kind of put the put it all together that well yeah I've recently I've recently added a couple of more sensors and a couple of more powered smart plugs that do power monitoring and so they're chatting more over Z-Wave and Z-Wave isn't super high bandwidth and hmm that's interesting I kind of just assumed it was my pi which controller do you use I don't remember what it's been branded as but it's based on the Sigma Designs Z-Wave USB adapter and I've been pretty happy with it because it's got a big old antenna on it. And so it gets pretty good range. And then like Zigbee, each Z wave device also that's powered acts as a repeater. And so I didn't even really stop to consider that maybe I've overloaded my network. I've got I've I've got 14 Z wave nodes now, which doesn't seem like a ton to me. But after hearing your experience, maybe I am kind of in the range. Maybe I maybe I need a more robust controller.
0: Yeah, I would say with the the chatty devices in particular that are doing, you know, an update every second or or so, that's going to chew through the bandwidth that's available pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, not to fanboy a bunch more about Matter,
0: because it's not even here yet.
1: But this is something I hope Matter solves, because Matter is an IP-based protocol. And a couple of things that are nice about that is it means you could route it over an IP network where you could have a lot more bandwidth, right? You could you could do that. But additionally, uh a lot of devices already have thread radios built in and pretty much all the vendors are going to use thread as the channel to communicate and that has pretty good bandwidth too compared to what we're used to. I hope we start to see more vendors support it. Uh Amazon just kind of reaffirmed their commitment this week as we're recording that they're that they're all in and that they're going to use thread and they're going to support Matter with the Echo devices. So my hope is to ride this out for like another year and a half, two years, and then switch over to matter-based devices for pretty much all this stuff. Could be just a dream, though.
0: Cynical old Alex over here doesn't believe a word of it. I know. I don't think matter's going to solve anything.
1: It's just going to be yet another standard. Maybe I'll be wrong. Hopefully, I'm wrong. I hope, but I I don't know. You know who's getting me all hyped? Is Paulus from Home Assistant? Like the last couple of live streams, he's been talking about it, and he makes it. He made an analogy that kind of worked for me. He said, "You can think of matter as what USB was for PC peripherals back in the early aughts and the '90s. You remember when we had like colored, colored green and purple for PS2, and and printers had different types of connectors, and they had SCSI on the Mac, and and then USB came along, and it was like a minimum base set of standards of connectivity that everything supported, and then vendors would build on top of that, and they will just like that with matter as well. But you kind of just at least had a few." Fundamentals that everybody agreed on with USB, and it it really took things to the next level when it comes to plugging devices into your computer. And he thinks, and I hope he's right, that that's what matter will be for IoT devices in the home. Long as we don't end up
0: with a USB C style USB implementation, <laughs> yeah. then we'll be okay.
1: Yeah, something tells me it's going to be a lot more like USB C, Alex. Huh. Well, that's a pretty good motivation for me to actually get off my Duff and get my Zigbee radio set up. Even if I don't have many Zigbee devices, I could get rid of my Hughes Bridge, save a little power. Okay, so while we're kind of getting close to it, you know we got to talk about it. You can almost feel it in the air, Black Friday. It's like a holiday for you. And uh, I know you're always getting ready to shuck drives. For those of you who maybe are new to the show and you don't know, this is what Alex loves to do. He loves to get a great price on like a large external drive because, you know, sometimes they'll put some real monsters in there. And then you shuck the external case and you load it up in your file server or something like that. So I imagine you must be getting prepared.
0: Here's my methodology,
1: right? Okay. When I
0: emigrated, I purchased about 10, 10 terabyte hard drives. And they were all purchased on the same week from, you know, the three or four different best buys that we have in Raleigh because it was a limit of two or three per customer. So I was like, screw that. I'm just going to go and drive to the next one and buy two more over there. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned about the bathtub curve. Uh, for those that don't know what that is, it, typically a drive will fail either right at the beginning of its life or right at the end of its life, you know, be that three, four, five, six years, whatever it is. But given that these drives have been exposed to the same environment, you know, they've all been in the same case, the same temperatures, they've been exposed to the same, uh, you know, manufacturing potential problems, they've all got the same firmwares, et cetera, et cetera. The chances if one or two go, that all 10 go, seems higher to me than if I was to spread it out. Yeah, you're definitely going to, if you have one failure, you're probably going to have a couple failures at least. At least, yeah. So what I'm doing to kind of mitigate that is my primary media server, like I say, has has 10 drives in it. Two are used for a ZFS mirror. One is used for SnapRaid parity, which leaves me seven drives for actual data. Um, I've got a mixture now of 10 terabytes and 12 terabytes in there. So it's somewhere in the region of 70 to 80 terabytes of raw, actual usable storage. So I'm not really hurting for space, but I've kind of set a benchmark of 200 bucks per drive as my kind of line in the sand to say right. I'm not spending more than 200 per whatever size drive I can buy for that. That's what I'll buy this year. And obviously there are some considerations with that because with ZFS you have to have the same size drives. Uh, Mismatched drives, you will lose a couple of terabytes here, a couple of terabytes there if you're not careful. Um, And with Snapraid as well, the parity disk has to be as big or bigger than the largest data disk so every time I change capacities I've got to factor that into my mind and so when I'm looking at what do I buy I think well I have 10 drives in my experience hard drives last for about five years why don't I just buy two drives every year and then that way when I upgrade the parity drive I actually also get a nice bump on my data disks as well. And then I can retire the existing drive to either go into my backup server, which is part of my home lab, or I can just wipe them and sell them on eBay for a few pennies. Uh, This year, I was able to pick up a couple of 14 terabyte easy stores from Best Buy for $200 a pop.
1: Wow, that's great. Now these are three and a half inch drives. Yeah, well, I mean, they
0: come. It's just just really annoying, to be honest. I I wish they would just sell these drives without the USB casing on them, but they don't. So, hey, here we are. What happens is you buy a retail box from Best Buy, and it has a big plastic shell around the drives with a USB uh, to SATA conversion drive and a power supply. And I've got to imagine there's quite a few dollars worth of extra cost in assembling these things putting them in the nice fancy case with a power supply etc uh why not just pass the saving on to me and say look you know this is a drive that was destined for an easy store have a have it but you know it's 20% cheaper than the retail model or something
1: i don't know there's got to be a business reason, right? Somebody who somebody out there listening must know. Let us know. Self-hosted.show slash contact. Why won't they just sell us these drives directly? <laughs>
0: I think it probably boils down to the fact that they they know that the warranty claims are going to be less from people that have shucked drives. Because, you know, you, you've got to take a few guitar picks and, and break some of the plastic tabs open. And it, it can be, if you've not done it before, quite a, an intimidating process. You're like, I've got $200 on my desk in front of me. I don't want to break
1: it. I've heard a conspiracy. What I've been told is that they are drives that for some reason they suspect have lower quality to them. Like maybe the boards had QA issues or or something like that. So they have the data that shows them that external drives don't run for as many hours as their internal drives do. And so they fail less. So they still think they're good enough for those use cases. So they package them up and they sell them off and they figure it's good enough because those users generally will run them for 80% less time than the people that have them built in, so they'll never notice. I've heard that, but I don't know if that's true.
0: I mean, we're not, we're never going to know if it's actually true or not, are we? But it would make sense. There'd be some MBA in an office somewhere worked out, how can we bin these drives that have failed a certain level of QA testing?
1: Yeah, but you haven't really seen that bear out. I mean, you've used quite a bit of shucks drives, and it's not like you have a lot of drive failures. Touch wood? No, I, uh, I haven't had...
0: I've had one actually fail, but I think that was a result of putting it into the Helios 64 because the data pins that snapped off and I had to solder in. it was a bit messy. Oh, yeah. So that was an actual Alex boo-boo, not a uh, drive boo-boo.
1: That's anecdotal, but your anecdotal uh, evidence would seem to suggest that it hasn't led to less reliable disks than I would say. So far, so good. Yeah.
0: But then, you know, you've got to factor in that How much is a a 14 terabyte drive on Newegg right now? I'm going to go and look it up right now, real time. So, a comparable 14 terabyte drive on Newegg, a Western Digital Ultra Star 14 terabyte drive, three and a half inch drive, $280 without the shell on it versus $200 at Best Buy for one with the shell on it. Uh, there, There are some warranty differences. This one has a five year warranty. I think the drives that Come in the case only have three years. Factor that in as you will. But even so, I mean, once you do the the calculations over enough disks, you actually end up saving quite a bit of money. So even if a couple more fail
1: over time, you're still probably saving some cash. Now, do you find you're having to do many or any kind of tricks these days for the for the drives you're shucking? No, I don't. But that's simply because I. Built three years ago,
0: some uh, custom Mm -hmm. SATA power connectors and I just snipped off the three volt rail in there. So, you know, whatever comes from my power supply may well have a three volt rail, but whatever I plug into the disks doesn't. So it it doesn't matter
1: to me. That is nice. That is nice.
0: So new drives, of course, mean that it's time to start figuring out where to plug stuff in and rebuild servers and, you know, just generally get my ducks in a row right? Sure. So before I went to England, I threw in the new motherboard, the ASRock Rack motherboard that I wrote the blog post about and I mentioned on the show. It looked really good. I think we talked about it for a bit and I almost wanted to order one. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, I've discovered what I think is a, a quite a big flaw in that motherboard. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's to do with how the PCIe lanes get shared out. So it doesn't sound like a big deal, except for the fact that I want to have about... F- three or four different nvme m.2 drives in there as well as a pcie u.2 nvme drive as well plus my hba card so by the time i've done that i've used up quite a lot of pcie lanes and the real kicker was i tested something called pcie bifurcation and what that means is i can take the 16x slot and split it into three or four different slices so i could take i have a pcie card that has four m.2 slots on it and I can take my 16x basically graphics card slot and turn that into four m.2 slots in this case it was actually only three because of how the lanes worked so when I did all the testing before I went to England I plugged everything in and it all worked and I was like oh brilliant I can use this motherboard in my server replacing one that had a lot more PCIe lanes that was a dual Zeon etc cetera, etc cetera. Trouble was, I didn't actually put something in the fourth and final PCIe slot until now. What happened until now? So, before I went to England, I did that, and uh, I noticed that (laughs) one of the NVMe drives wasn't showing up Uh as part of my ZFS mirror that I have for my Docker app data. And uh, I was like, "Ah, screw it! I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. I'll deal with it when I get back." Turned out, when you put something into that final slot. The PCIe switch inside the motherboard turns that first slot from a 16 to an 8X slot.
1: Which means that bifurcation doesn't work. And that took me all day to figure that out. Right. And it's not like there's um not like there's a little LED light that comes on that says, by the way, bifurcation has been disabled. <laughs> like you just gotta really know how that motherboard works to figure that out. So y- you must have assumed everything from hardware failure to firmware issues. Was, was it digging through the motherboard manual where you finally put it together? Yeah, I actually had to go and look at the flipping
0: schematic of the motherboard <laughs> chipset layout. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it was only, honestly, once I plugged... So I, I I went back to my Apple Genius Bar training and unplugged everything. And was like, right, I'm going to do a minimum viable system. Right, if I put something in this slot, does it work? if i put something in that slot does it work if i and right. everything on its own worked it was only when i put something in the final slot and
1: i was like oh no and then did you try taking that thing in the final slot and putting it in its own slot and see if it works on its own yeah, yeah it did <laughs> yeah that's what you got to do that's what you got to do <laughs> and then
0: i was just like shit this means this means that there's a bug in the bios or there's something wrong with how the PCIe routing works so then I went and read the manual for far too long and figured it out and I was like oh crap so I mean it's still a good motherboard right it's, yeah, a, it's kind of a edge case yeah yeah but I mean there's only three PCIe slots on the damn thing anyway because it's a micro ATX board yeah so would it have killed them to put an extra Few lanes on it. I know the platform's capable because my consumer level board has enough lanes to have two PCIe slots and 2M.2 slots and 4M. What I'm trying to say is they've cheaped out somewhere and it's just a frustrating place to cheap out on a server
1: grade motherboard. Yeah, you would think that's just it. That is just it. It, Like if there was going to be a situation where you end up using or needing. As much pci possible it it's probably more likely to be in a server scenario than pretty much any desktop scenario except for gaming machines
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the upshot is right i've gone from instead of having a two terabyte mvme mirror zfs mirror for all my docker app data i've gone down to a single zfs drive two terabyte NVMe drive it's backed up to my backup server so if anything happens Which, funny story, I accidentally wiped one of the drives, uh, one of the two terabyte drives that had a couple of VMs on it and my home assistant install on it.
1: Oh, no.
0: As part of my troubleshooting, because I saw another PCIe MVME drive pop up and I was like, that's it. Why isn't ZFS seeing it? I'll just try wiping the partition table like that's going to (laughs) work.
1: Oh, no. So your home assistant was down for a while. Yeah, it was down for about a day. Yeah.
0: (gasps) Oh, no. Yeah. And then it's a good test because I was able to test the backups of several different things. You know, I use Syncoid to replicate to my local backup and really it just vindicated why I have an on-site backup as well as off-site because restoring the three, four hundred gigabytes over the LAN, over gigabit was an hour, whereas doing it from
1: my dad's in England would have taken me weeks. Yeah. It's not complete just having one, but having both, that's really where I feel comfortable. And you're yeah. right. It's oh man, oh I can't even imagine how stressed I would be if I wiped out home assistant because it it kind of it's kind of become integral to how the RV functions these days. Mm-hmm. So it would be like systems are offline and everything's running on manual mode. I don't know. Well, we have motion <laughs> oh, sensor man. lights in the kitchen, and I walked in the <laughs> kitchen in the evening. I was like, why aren't the damn lights turning on? <laughs> oh, and then the conversation with the wife has to be pretty awkward too. Like that's. Oh, she knew something was up. I think she calls it a nerd rage. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Of course. She must have been, she must have been aware something was going down just from that. But, you know, I just like because uh, it's not it's it's the, the house isn't working. There's that factor, which is embarrassing. Then there's the fact that you're the one that set it all up. So it operates like that. And then there's the fact that you're the one that just broke the very thing that you set up that the whole house depends on to operate. <laughs> because I wrote a new
0: partition table on a drive. Why would I do that? It's one of those things. You do it in the moment and you're like, I'll be fine. You reboot. And then it says ZFS pool Intel two terabyte NVMe not found. You know, like, oh no. Oh no. Cause you know, instantly that that's just the rest of the
1: evening gone. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that is such a sinking feeling. And and it's, it's like, okay, I have backups, but in that very moment, like it's all on those backups, you know, are they up to date? (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, actually a couple of them weren't. So my Red Hat IRC bouncer that I used to get on the Red Hat VPN and stuff like that. The last backup of that that I had was actually from July. So I had to uh, lose three or four months worth of history there with IRC and stuff like that, which was a bit frustrating because quite often when I'm working a support case for a customer or something, um, tidbits will come through IRC when I'm talking to the support engineer and It's actually a very useful resource, and I've lost four months of that now. So let that be a lesson to you, kids. Make sure your backups are current.
1: We should have like a tagline at the outro every episode, and go check your backups, because you and I have both been there. (laughs) Yes. And thank God for the Home Assistant Google Drive integration.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Just import a new Home Assistant image into Proxmox using a script that's on GitHub, so it takes literally a minute. And then apply the uh, full restore using the Google Drive backup plugin. And it's as if nothing happened.
1: It's just amazing. That's sweet. That's nice to know it's so easy to get working on Proxmox. I do want to try that someday. So it seems like a lot of reworking things. And you were telling me before the show that you kind of used that opportunity to get your documentation game up. And you may have kind of put together what you could almost call a self-hosted Notion setup. Yeah, I think we'll cover this in a lot more detail
0: probably next episode. I'm still working out some of the rough corners. But the rough gist is this. I've been using a documentation app called Obsidian recently as part of this whole new Zettelkasten, uh, Rome Research, Foam in VS Code. Uh, Don't forget Emacs Org Mode. Emacs Org Rome, which I have used for a lot of our show notes, actually, and I still yeah. love. but. <sighs> Emacs is just a pain, isn't it? I'm sorry, audience. I'm sorry. <laughs> Send your hate mail to Alan at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Hey, to be fair, you gave it a legit go. I did, yeah. I mean it's it's just it just breaks a bit too often when I want to sit down uh, and take notes, unfortunately. Oh, that's nice. So good. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Say lovey. So yes, I'm using Obsidian, which is a, a free I think it's open source.
1: And Notion, I should say, is like the the new game in note-taking. It's an all-in-one note-taker where you can embed, embed spreadsheets and wikis and obviously notes and drawings. And it's a monster Electron app, and it also has a web service, and it has native iOS and Android apps. And it promises to be what, like, several different note-taking apps are all in one place. And, of course, it has team integration and business stuff and all of that, but it's a service. It's not something you can run yourself. And you know as well as I do that,
0: you probably have fragments of notes in about eight different apps that you've tried over the last 10 years. Yep. And uh, getting the data out of these proprietary services is just very difficult, you know. Um, And the thing that I really love about Obsidian, there's lots of others coming up as well. There's one called LogSec, uh, S-E-Q. Go and have a look at that if you're interested. But the thing I love about Obsidian is it does everything in markdown files. There you go. Boomsies. So is it storing them just all on the file system locally in plain text on your disk? Yep. So yeah. it really even has Joplin beat in that regard because for some reason and it, this pisses me off because Joplin is so close uh it scrambles the file names in Joplin. Like if you've ever looked at the plain text files on disk from Joplin, it's just, you know, it's 32 characters of complete gibberish and Oh, it's so close. Joplin is so close. But if they fix that one thing.
1: uh, They're like ID database ID file names or something. But it sounds like you're kind of cooking something that's a little more complete, even that's like web component, search component, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. The really nice thing about Notion is that there's
0: a little checkbox you can select in the corner that says make this note public. And when I was working on my photography article for Ars Technica a few months ago, I really gave Notion a full try just to get the experience. And I've got to say it was fantastic, actually. Oh, I mean, okay. apart yeah. from the fact that it my data is now hostage in that system, um, the fact that I could share notes with, you know, the editors at ours and they could, you know, make comments and it was like it was like Google Docs but on steroids, because it I could it was
1: it's hard to explain, but I really, really enjoyed the experience. No, I could definitely see that, especially in 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 working, you know, with like a an outlet, I like publishing, yeah, for sure. So something like that would be great. And I could
0: version things, and it, it had an iOS app, and you know, lots of good reasons. So I'm pairing Obsidian with, uh, you know, it just creates a directory of Markdown files. Uh, I've mentioned this on the show before, but MkDocs just reads a directory of Markdown files to create a self-hosted wiki. But to connect the two in the middle. You probably want some kind of a continuous integration build system thing. And for that, I've been trying out something called Drone connected with Git T lately. Uh, and I'll go I'll go into full details probably in the next episode, but definitely in a blog post over the next two weeks, explaining how I go about connecting the two. I've actually already written the first part of that blog post series, um, which is how to connect MKDocs and Drone CI together. Uh, so the next part will be how t- how I use a couple of plugins in MK Docs to really make some of the cool stuff in Obsidian, like the wiki linking and the backlinking stuff, all kind of work as part of the website as well. It's really slick. I've been using it for the last few days since the weekend to document which hard drives in which slot, which Zigbee button I've put in which room, all this kind of stuff. And I am really, for the first time, feeling like this might be a long-term wiki solution that... I can use my wife can actually use
1: i'm I'm really pretty jazzed on this one to be honest, hmm. well, then I look forward to hearing more about it. You gave me a little uh demonstration before the show, and it is very cool and what I like about the entire pipeline is you keep the data on your land the entire time, so it is something I could replicate and and use off grid, which is something I'm always looking for
0: absolutely, yeah, and you've got the website component so you can pull it up on your phone where you wherever you are, you know a lot of these note-taking apps emacs is a perfect example doing that on mobile is just a train wreck you know uh, and obsidian has an ios app as i mentioned i think they're working on a google play version of the app as well and uh obviously i've got obsidian on the desktop so i can do my editing in a real first class editor unlike some kind of random wiki software which is honestly where things like TiddlyWiki have fallen down for me as the editor just doesn't do it. I still use TiddlyWiki and I've got a lot of useful information in there that I'm migrating over. Mm. But uh, the long term review of TiddlyWiki is my wife doesn't use it because it's putting images in. It's just, I had to create an entry in the wiki of how to use the wiki to add images to the wiki. Uh,
1: yeah, that sounds about right. Not a good indictment. <laughs> when you were showing it to me earlier, I noticed that you had a plugin in to generate really quick and nice looking markdown tables. So is there a pretty healthy Community plugin ecosystem around Obsidian. Oh
0: yeah, yeah. There's there was an episode of the Connected podcast on Relay FM where one of the guys goes into basically how he's creating his own, basically his own editor inside Obsidian to work with his own workflow that publishes posts and does all sorts of crazy stuff. (laughs) Oh wow! I would honestly liken the community plugin ecosystem to Emacs. It started off as just an editor. But it's very quickly becoming a bit of a cult, and lots of people are writing stuff that will run all sorts of crazy stuff inside Obsidian, and I've, I, I'm only two or three days in at this point, um, so I can only imagine how in a couple of months
1: I'll be uh, doing all sorts of wacky, wild, and wonderful stuff. And Obsidian is 100% free for personal use, no account required, um, you get access to the plugins and the API. There are a couple of paid versions, which I imagine is also kind of a nice way to support development uh you get access to like early builds um and then there's also a commercial version, and even there it's it's fifty bucks like it's the pricing is really is really fair. I like this model um and I've heard people that you and I both really respect in our community talk really highly of obsidian, but it does definitely strike me as a power tool, Alex like it's not. It's not a casual notes app, something like SimpleNote is or the notes app that's built into your phone OS. It's like it's a power tool of for notes. If you want it to be, I mean it, it could just
0: be completely atomic, unlinked set of markdown files. That would be nice still. The magic of it though is if you do start connecting everything together, you know, I've got a page here that has all of my Zigbee buttons listed, but then I connect to a separate page elsewhere that then says you know that zigbee button uh, is an ikea tradfree and i connect to another note about how to set up an ikea tradfree button not as part of the original zigbee note but as its own separate atomic thing that just lives in its own space but has a backlink to the zigbee stuff it's it's kind of hard to explain but uh, this this whole Zettel custom linking notes and organic research type thing is very popular in academia, but I'm finding it very useful for technical documentation as well. Here we are in November, and what does a new month mean? It means a
1: new Home Assistant release. Yeah, it does. Just when you got the last one installed, hopefully, ninety contributors, over a thousand pull requests. It's, there's a lot going on now with this project. Sixty-seven thousand lines added. 20, basically 30,000 lines of code removed. Uh, They call it a big release. A lot of Hacktoberfest contributions were in this one. Uh, Over a thousand different contributors to this release, just the core too, not the documents, the front end stuff, just the core Home Assistant release had a thousand, over a thousand contributors. Wow. I mean, that makes me wonder how it even worked before. I mean, think about like managing that just going through it and making sure all that stuff's of certain quality it's a heroic workload no wonder frank's
0: a bit grumpy sometimes eh?
1: <laughs> you know he <laughs> seems like such a nice guy on the streams uh yeah he, he is shared really it.
0: i think sometimes we paint him in a bad light but uh like you say when you see him actually in person and talking on the streams very articulate guy obviously very smart so
1: yeah he he told a story that you know really demonstrated how much he really does care about the user experience uh So, you know, they rolled out that new Tuya integration that they worked with the Tuya Cloud folks, and there were some problems, and people are having a rough time of it. And so Frank sees that, and he goes to his local stores and he fills up shopping carts full of Tuya enabled devices. uh, Crazy things like little one off buttons, um, cubes, cameras, doorbells, all different kinds of lights, Christmas decorations, all sorts of stuff, and brings it all home and sits there like just a champ and gets through all kinds of compatibility issues and just adds tons of devices. So some of that work is landing in this release as well as a fix for time zone changes. There was a bug that caused like a lot of CPU usage when the time zone change kicked in, which has already happened to our friends in Europe. They did release a hot fix, uh, mid cycle. That's why you may have seen an additional update come down. Uh, but this includes that hot fix as well. So, You might want to do that. And you'll like this. Speaking of links, Alex, you can now give devices links out to like the WLED page for configuration, or if it's a device that needs a cloud configuration, it'll link right to it. Or if the device has like a local control panel. Now you won't have to go figure out what its IP is by searching your DHCP logs like I do. Home Assistant will just generate a link to the management UI if it knows it. And uh, you can just find it right there in the device screen, which is nice the icon picker has landed do, 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 do. and it's pretty great
0: they did a good job that is legit a very low priority feature
1: but boy does it make a big difference yeah and you know if you if you haven't done this yet listener uh alex and i love this but take a minute with some you know some evening when you're you know, you're, you're kind of watching TV, but it's not something you're super into. I don't. Know, whenever you got some downtime, and go through and add icons to your end, you know, to your entries, and get everything with its own custom icon. What kind of light it is, heaters, fans. It it really makes it nice, and it makes it easier to sort through your stuff at a quick glance. And they've really done a good job of making this thing sort through like over six thousand icons in just seconds. It's super impressive. Just a couple other things I'll mention. Uh, they've added support for WebRTC video streams. Home Assistant now will recognize a WebRTC stream as a camera source, but there is a catch. It's only active when your browser is viewing it and pulling it in, because it's actually your browser that is establishing the WebRTC PDP video stream. But you can you can embed it and have it in a card, and Home Assistant can help facilitate that. An example of a device where this is actually kind of useful is the Nest doorbell. Actually provides video via WebRTC, and so now you could pull that into Home Assistant if you got a. A Nestorbell. Bell.
0: Well, that's pretty cool. I also saw something about the uh, Home Assistant Amber that's coming up.
1: Yeah, man. Well, they, so it's funded. Um, oh, good. Yeah. They had about 2,500 ish backers, uh, raised half a million dollars. They were having and are having some problems sourcing their PoE chip. So they're switching to a different chip. But there are some first hands on of the prototype. It's bigger than I expected, but it looks really good. And there's some really, special things that the home assistant crew did on the board. Like they, they drew little, they like hand drew it's printed on there, but it looks like it's hand drawn, but I'm sure it's not to the, to like different chips on the board. And they wrote on there what they do in this really cute little way. So it's, it's a really nice touch. The home assistant Amber is, looks like it's going to be a really nice piece of hardware to run home assistant. And, uh, they, uh, I think, I think they're pretty happy with the prototype so far. And they, uh, They've shipped out to a couple of YouTubers to take a look at them. So if you search out on YouTube, you can find some hands-ons with the Amber. Yeah, I saw that. Maybe we need to up our YouTube game. We need to get our hands yeah. on some of this gear. You know, Paulus is in the California area. Maybe we just need to like take him out for beers or something. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they also made a big stink out of making sure everybody knew that next month's going to be the State of the Union on December 11th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. They say uh, it will be newsworthy, whatever yeah. that means. I'm going to try to make it. I'll try to make it and I'll let you know. Uh, There's, you know, a lot, they say, going in uh, to that release, which seems impossible since this one had so much. But I, I really appreciate all of the hard work they're doing. They've also reorganized some of the entity screens and just a couple other nice little changes where if you are somebody out there that's actually using the automatically generated Home Assistant Lovelace dashboard, you're going to see some improvements there, too, coming your way. Yeah, those device categories are really nice.
0: So rather than having every single parameter about a device listed under just one tab, it will separate out stuff like the battery percentage or the RSSI stuff that you really don't need to know most of the time uh, from like the main toggle switch, for example. That would be in its own category now. Really nice small change, that one.
1: Yeah, and uh, I actually still have just... I've been pushing it as far as I can. I am still using the auto-generated Lovelace dashboard on my home assistant blue here in the stadium. Really? How many yeah. millions of little circles do you have at the top of that thing? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I should look. I should tell you. It's, it, there are some for sure, but I've been trying to stick with it. I almost broke this last week. I really did, but then they had this update and I thought, well, I got to see this. Oh, actually there's no circles along the top on the now they are in fact they've re- they've this part of the update. Only two of them are now on the auto-generated dashboard and they're in a different spot now. Totally laid out a little bit differently. I remember
0: I disabled the auto-generated dashboard when I added my UniFi integration and it showed me every single Wi-Fi device that had ever connected to my Wi-Fi network in yeah. that view at the top. And I was like, "I'll oh, screw this.
1: Yeah, my dashboard's currently telling me that the uh, office HP Office Jet Pro in my office has 70% ink. And it's telling me that for each one of the ink cartridges and i just don't yeah yeah you need to know that right now by the way it's not currently printing just so you know okay all right i was worried well as
0: always a big thanks to our site reliability engineers the subscribers that make this show possible we really do appreciate every single one of you and you know the more of you there are the less ad reads that we have to do you know um so a big thanks to all of our sres
1: yeah and They also get an extended post show. Don't forget, they get a little more show. Selfhosted.show slash SRE. Oh, yeah. My dad's looking at buying a new house and
0: uh, he's going to be buying one out in the boonies potentially. And so we're going to get your thoughts on Starlink in the post show this week. Oh, yeah, we can talk about
1: that. Also, we'd love to have you email us, contact us. I don't know, feedback us. Give us your thoughts. Maybe there's a project you love or you have uh, feedback on something we talked about today. You can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. That is the place to get in touch with us. And find me on Twitter. I am at Chris LAS. Is feedback a verb? Feedback, us? Yeah, I yeah. think it can be. You know? Apparently it is now. What are you doing when you send back feedback? You're feedbacking, right? <laughs> okay. I'm
0: not sure that's how that works. <laughs> <laughs> you can go and feedback me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. <laughs> and the show is at self-hosted show.
1: <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Oh, and links to everything we talked about at self-hosted.show slash 57. So, you got a nice little
0: present last time we talked. The Starlink box had just arrived or was about to arrive. I can't quite remember.
1: But how's that, how's that going? You know, it's funny. You can really tell where my head's at because the thing that the first thing I wanted to tell you about is that it uses only about 43, 45 watts of power. Not, I didn't even think about the speed, <laughs> the latency. Most people just get their electric from the wall and don't care. Yeah. I had braced myself for like 100 plus watts of continuous power use and was really trying to think through like how was i going to make that work do i need to get like a dedicated jackery for this thing like how am i do i need to add more batteries to my rv like what am i gonna do but 45 watts i can pretty much i can pretty much work with that well for your internet that is how you earn your job yeah your, your
0: living yeah yeah you can put up with yeah. that
1: I'd probably be willing to give a little bit of blood each day if that's what it required to make it work. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, uh, performance-wise, I got really lucky where I set it up. I had no obstructions, which is tricky to do in the Pacific Northwest, I have now discovered. But where I was in the woods, I had 100% um, access to the satellites. And there were times where I got up to 240 megabits. It was really good. And, you know, I saw anywhere between 25-ish milliseconds to 80 milliseconds, but I'd say the average was between 35 and 40 milliseconds. It was interesting. Like, on LTE, it's just all over the place. Like, one ping will be 50 milliseconds, and then the next ping right after, it's like 1,500 milliseconds, right? And then the one after, it's like 80 milliseconds. But with Starlink, it's more related to the position of the satellite. So... There's like kind of an optimal time where the satellites are overhead and the ping times are like in the high 20s. And then as it kind of drifts off and the next one's coming or something, I don't know, uh, like your ping time will slowly go up. But, you know, we're talking hours, right? So it's it's it, it perceptibly if I look and it says it's I have a ping of 35 milliseconds. That's probably what it's going to be for like the next hour right whereas with LTE it'd be just all over the place. Yeah, cuz how it works they they send like a train
0: of a dozen satellites over and I've actually been outside and you can go and look at them flying over on a on a clear night. Oh, I've never seen them. And it's it's weird. It's just mm. like a a line of stars just moving for about 15 20 minutes all in perfect unison. And the way in which it works I believe is these uh you know the 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 dishy that you have talks to one of the satellites which then talks currently anyway back down to a ground station which is why they've only got limited availability in terms of you know the latitude that you can operate at in time i believe they will be doing multi-gigabit wireless links between each of the starlink satellites as, as different nodes and so even if you're in a different latitude you should be able to connect to a base station somewhere else as long as you've got a train of starlink satellites between
1: you and it i think the next batch they're launching includes those laser links too um you know i'll tell you even though i'm not actually using it at present because i just recently uh relocated yesterday but um there's a there's a weird relief that i have knowing that i'm paying for it and that i have it and that I can go set up a dish somewhere and get internet access because with cellular, there's always the possibility I could be somewhere for a while without connectivity. And my whole, my whole, everything runs online, my life, my connection to my kids, you know, my business, it's all online. So sometimes I love it. I love going offline, but sometimes you don't want that to happen. And so it's a big relief to know that I could go put out a dish and get connectivity. I was surprised. It's sort of like, it almost feels like I have an internet insurance policy now. You know what I mean? Like, I've always got internet. How does the range work? So
0: uh, you have like a service cell, which is a certain square mileage. Is that right?
1: And then yeah, I think people estimate it's around 30, 40 miles, depending. How have you found which, that? Which you, um, I'm about to find out, but I think that's about you know it's kind of the range. I kind of when I'm in the Pacific Northwest, that's kind of the range I poke around in. So we'll see. I may try changing my service area to somewhere just slightly more centralized. And that's a big roll of the dice because there may not be availability. I, I, they have a lot of availability issues at the moment. And they also just announced that they're also being hit hard by the part shortage. So they're also not having a problem manufacturing the dish. So I got in just under the wire. And if you go to r slash Starlink, it's just a depressing list of people who just keep getting their, Ship date pushed back, um, you know, and I'm sure eventually they'll clear up. Plus, you got Bezos is going to launch his own thing. And I don't know if you saw this, but today Boeing was just uh, granted approval to launch a Internet satellite system that's going to be a lower orbit system. And they claim they can do it with 147 satellites. I'm not sure why Starlink would need 30,000 and they would only need 147 unless it's just for military, (laughs) but um, they're going to use lower orbits and they're going to do some VHF, higher frequency, I guess even higher speed uh, services, what they say.
0: Well, it's amazing technology, regardless of of the wait times or what have you, you know, in ten years, we won't care about these yeah. little, little yeah. delays. We'll just be able to buy a house in the middle of nowhere and get two hundred meg down. That's that's just going to be the reality.
1: That that's it. I mean, this really does make my off grid property dream that I have a reality, right? I mean, it really does. Cities
0: are screwed, if you ask me. In the long term, I mean, COVID aside, you know, there's a lot of stuff with uh, the the internet that keeps people in towns and cities at the moment. Yeah. Me, for example, you know, I work 100% remote and I live just outside Raleigh. I could go
1: and live in the mountains if I wanted to. That's just it, isn't it? I mean, we call it we call it work from home and we have a lot of people working from home now that didn't work from home. But what they really do is they're working online and you could work online anywhere. Absolutely. So that's, that's going to be a big thing. You're right. I'm not sure how I feel about having more space junk, but it's going to be game changing to have more access and have competitive options to get access in different places so it means i'm going to go live in the woods one day and that that's a nice little dream